Welcome to Zero Brightness, a podcast about horror video games. My name is Ali Jafar, stationed in Minneapolis, Minnesota, joined by my friend James Woodard, all the way from uh, somewhere, somewhere in Texas. Where are you, where are you from? <laughs> hey, 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 James, D- uh, tell the people where you're from. Tell them a little bit about your life. I'm from somewhere in time, by Iron Maiden. <laughs> oh. Well, thanks for calling in today. <laughs> uh, today, we're talking about Kuon. Yeah. Which is a PS2 rarity. <laughs> yeah. As you said, it's made out of diamonds and pearls. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those games that got real, real hardcore expensive in its afterlife. Pretty late in the PS2 life cycle. It was December 2004. It's, you know, one of the many games that because it was a niche genre game late in the PS2 life cycle and put out by a small publisher they just didn't make a lot of copies of it mm-hmm. and so these games kind of became rare and somewhat revered for their rarity which it, when i was younger it used to kind of bug me because a lot of these games i mean they're not like the best horror games on the ps2 or they're not like the best games you know what i mean but they're just really rare <laughs> um before we get too deep into it as always This episode of Zero Brightness is brought to you by you. You can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness to find out more and sign up. Uh, We are now fully into producing uh, patron exclusive content. We have a sideshow called Zero Brightness Plus. Oh, it's a sideshow. All right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, so that's exclusive to our patrons, and we just put up our first episode. Going to do some more, got some topics, just a little something extra. Yeah. So, and there's more. There's more coming. So, we are making it worth your while. Um, but yeah, you can check us out on there. And also, as always, Zero Brightness is a game club. And if you are so inclined, you can listen until the end of the episode when we tell you what we're going to play next. You can play along with us. If you are doing that, you can also jump in our Discord. We have a Game Club channel now. Yeah, You can get some fresh hot takes while we're playing the game, <laughs> or you can throw your own into the ring. It's all in good fun. Yes. So, Kuon. Speaking of Agitech, I'm looking at their list of games they published. And so many of them are niche cool games. Yeah. Like uh, Clock Tower 2, Shadow Tower, mm-hmm. R-Type Delta, all Armored Core games. You know, they did a bunch of Neo Geo ports on the PS1, which I had several. Uh, Disaster yeah. Report, which is getting kind of expensive. Echo Night Beyond. Mm-hmm. Some of the Wild Arms sequels. Yeah, so pretty pricey stuff. Or at least sought after, like, hidden gems. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's like this stuff was all very low print run. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all niche stuff. They were kind of only making what they thought they were going to be able to move as new copies. Um, so that's how stuff gets so expensive. I think another interesting wrinkle in this whole rarity situation with PS2 games was that I remember at the time, like around that time, I worked at an electronics boutique and I figured out that for a lot of these games that were super low print run, like they were not sending copies to stores. Yeah. They were only doing like pre-orders. Yeah. And I think, you know, either they were doing like the company themselves were doing direct sales or they were hitting up like really small retailers. So that's why like 
at the time you could go online and buy some from like some weird import website right but like an english version yeah i think because i got echo night beyond when it came out i i do think i had to pre-order it well so that's the thing is i remember at my store i like okay i had every american release ps2 horror game at the time <laughs> i got them as they came out and like i pre-ordered all that shit and sometimes they just wouldn't show up wow because like the pre-order system was super janky and if it was a game where a store was only receiving like one pre-order they might just not send you a copy Mm. and you had to request it or whatever so that's actually how i got rule of rose was that i game the system and i put in like 10 fake (laughs) pre-orders and then just like didn't pay for any of them and then we got one copy wow yeah it was pretty nuts but that game had a super crazy small print run because i think some of the they may have stopped printing them because of all the controversy around it Mm. um that's gonna be another episode (laughs) but with this game so it was always the same thing like so for for our listeners who either aren't old enough to remember this or just have a really bad memory uh basically the way this worked back in the day was usually you'd be flipping through a magazine and you'd see some blurb in the preview section about a game like Kuon. Yeah. And you'd be like, whoa, that looks cool. <laughs> on. Uh, and then you'd, you know, you'd go and you'd pre-order the game and your pre-order wouldn't show up. And you'd forget about it. And then later you'd be at the store and you'd be like, wait, what the fuck? They have a used copy of this game? Didn't it just come out? Why is it only $12? <laughs> okay. And then you bought the game, which is what I did. <laughs> and it's just, it's funny, I think, reapproaching games like this. I'm excited to do it and I have fun doing it, but it's also just weird for me because there's this whole generation after us who now it's like all this kind of like YouTube bait, like, look at this crazy game. It's so rare. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, but they're also just kind of like just janky old games that we used to get for $12. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think Kuon is one of those games that people really glorify. Um, I think only based on its rarity, but it's kind of known as like a series hidden gem. Yeah. But back in the day when it released, it only got middling reviews. I think it got sevens across the board in Famitsu. And um, it, it just didn't get much press at all in North America. Well, and here's another thing, is that From Software now is, like, legendary. Yeah. Right? For the Soul series. Mm -hmm. But, like, at that time, From Software was not legendary. No, not at all. There's... There's a number of factors playing into that. Okay, number one, From Software pumped out a lot of cheapo crap. Like... They made a lot of games, and some of their games were really fucking bad. No, they did have some really good games, and they have some classics. However, the way that things were brought over to America was really weird. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the like great sequels never came over. So right. for example, we so the Echo Knight series is three games. Yeah, we got Echo Knight one which is like kind of shitty. <laughs> and then we didn't get Echo Knight 2, which is supposedly very good. And now you, there is an English patch and you can play it. We did get Echo Knight Beyond, which is also really fucking good. So that's like a whole series that, I mean, a lot of us didn't even know was a series. Because sure. like we didn't know there was an Echo Knight 2. It's kind of the same with, I mean... Shadow Tower? Wasn't that one of the Kingsfield games? Well, I think it, it was its own series. Mm as far as i know and like so we got the original shadow tower which is like it's pretty good i mean i don't know for me it wasn't like 
you know, one of the greatest games ever. But then there is a PS2 Shadow Tower game, same deal. There's now an English patch. It was apparently being localized and got canceled, mm. but that one's supposedly way better. So that's like another entry in like a series that has some really like good games that were increasing quality that we didn't get to see that. Yeah. I, I do think we did miss a Kingsfield also. Yeah, we totally did. Yeah. I don't think we got Kingsfield four, which is also a PS2 game. What we did get though, was like the worst games they put on the PS2. So <laughs> like right when the PS2 came out, they put out like two very middling, like unremarkable fantasy games, eternal ring and Evergrace. Mm. Like those games sucked, and I had both of those games. Um, okay, so apparently they developed Cookie and Cream for the PS2, which is which is a banger. That game is banger. Do you know that game? Yeah, yeah, super tough. Um, we got. I mean, so at that time too, I think a lot of people would have known from software as the people who made Armored Core. Yeah, totally. Um, like and Kingsfield, those were like their two big properties. Armored Core got a bunch of demos, and I think that helps its visibility. Yeah, and the demo gave you a lot of customizability in a pretty short demo. Yeah, so it, I, I think I think that demo is kind of legendary for like giving people like a real good taste of what the Armored Core series was about. For sure. But I don't know. I mean, it's like, okay, we also got like Lost Kingdoms and Otogi, which are two like extremely mediocre GameCube and Xbox games, Mm. uh, respectively. Like what I'm trying to say is that I guess like at the time, from software kind of had this like reputation as making like sort of lower end cheap games that were interesting, but Yeah. It's no Dark Souls. Yeah. I mean, that series really changed the perception of the company. Mm-hmm. And like going back, it's like, okay, they do definitely have like a, a legit and a respectable legacy as making sort of like core gamer games, you know? To me, I remember at the time like getting Kuan and knowing who From Software was and being like, oh, it's one of these games. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, I guess like, I don't really have a point I'm trying to make here. I just think it's interesting how the visibility and the optics of things changes over time. You can even see how the success of dark souls has changed from soft. Like they haven't made anything but souls likes since dark souls popped off. Yeah, for sure. Well, and they made, uh, didn't they? Yeah. Okay. They made metal wolf chaos. Like, yeah. and that's like not very long before demon souls. It's not a great game, but it's memorable as fuck. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, and, and like cookie and cream. Holy shit. Yeah. I actually didn't know they made cookie and cream. Like, or I forgot, like what the fuck, man, that's a great <laughs> game. If you're not familiar, it's like a cutesy puzzle game where it's meant to have two people simultaneously holding the side of one controller. Yeah. So two people share a controller and it was like basically immediately just became like relationship tester the game. <laughs> so like if you and your SO wanted to see like how much you could actually rely on each other, you could play cookie and cream. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny. Yeah, I was I was in a very bad relationship when I played that game and we were not good at that game. So, I mean, go figure makes sense but they don't they don't do shit like that we're not getting metal wolf 2 or you know cookie and cream return although that would be sick metal wolf chaos did just get a re-release by devolver digital yeah uh it would be really fucking cool if devolver started releasing some of these older fromsoft games again yeah totally like getting a kuan steam release would be pretty killer yeah well and also like yeah 
uh, like I was saying, I was reading that uh, that Shadow Tower, uh, PS2 Shadow Tower, has a full official localization. Oh, really? Echo Knight, yeah. Echo Knight 2 has a full English localization as well mm-hmm. that it's it might be official. I can't remember, but it's like, I mean, it's just patch it, dude. Like, yeah. that's, that's just patchable. Like, that shit's crazy. Patch them, ship them, throw them on Steam. Yeah. I mean, people yeah, will buy dude. that shit for 20 bucks. I mean, if Kuan was on Steam for 20 bucks, I'd consider it. Well, and like I've said before, I mean, I love, you know, PS2 era stuff. And if I go to a, like our local, like indie game store and they have a cool PS2 game I want for 20 bucks, I'll pay it. I think that's the right price for me, you know? And, you know, that being said with Quan being 300 fucking dollars, um, needless to say, we, uh, did not pay $300 for this game. No. And I do not condone that. (laughs) I, I paid $7 for a hacked memory card so I can play DVDs on my PlayStation. Yeah. And I downloaded a PlayStation emulator. Yeah. No, it's it's wacky. But it's even the same thing, too, with, like, Rule of Rose, right? And like, okay, sorry, Tim. My friend Tim has a copy of Rule of Rose, and he paid <laughs> a lot of money for it. But it's like, I bought that game when it came out. I have extremely mixed feelings about that game because I love parts of it. Mm. Um, parts of it are brilliant. But the whole act of playing the game is not fun. It's not an enjoyable experience. And to pay that much money for it and then have that be the thing, like, it's it's just wild. But I'm also not a collector. I don't enjoy the collecting aspect of it. I right. get no... My point is that I don't understand that side of it because I don't get enjoyment from it. So I'm just looking at them purely as games. Oh, totally. Yeah. And even for me, like, one of the only collections I've really ever had was it, at... During the PS2 era, I bought every horror game as it came out. And eventually I was like, oh, I have every horror game. That's kind of funny. But like (laughs) it it was just because that's what I liked. And I mostly just wanted to play those games. I wasn't as the time went on. I wasn't really playing other games, especially on the PS2. You know, like I wasn't trying to fucking play Red Faction or whatever. Like, fuck that. Like. (laughs) You know, I thought you were a comrade. (laughs) (laughs) Now, only in real life do I play Red Faction because, yeah, fuck capitalism. (laughs) And on that note. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Kuan, baby. Kuan is definitely in the Resident Evil clone wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, We've even got a couple scenarios that run simultaneously, but kind of not just like Resident Evil. Like, you'll do the same puzzles in each person's scenario type thing. Yeah, it's exactly like Resident Evil 2, which we talked about in the first episode, where it's got two parallel scenarios that have intersecting plot points and storylines, but they don't actually make sense, and they're not arranged in a way where they would actually be intersecting plot points, you know? Yeah. They're just... They're just there. They're like lanes of traffic. I mean, sometimes it gets a little interesting. Like, towards the end of certain scenarios, it'll cut off in an interesting way, and then, like, it'll get filled in on the next one. Yeah. It is it is interesting. It's also, like, it's a little bit asinine. We'll get to it. Yeah. I have my... I think there's an easy way they could have uh, made it a lot better, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Oh, the one thing I will say. So, I forgot to fill in the blanks about... Uh, 
telling my history of this game, which is that I mentioned this before and you were roasting me about it in the discord. So I have to bring it up, but, uh, I hated this game when I originally played it, but I did beat it and I loaded up my old save file and I had all the extra modes you get for beating the game, which was kind of funny. I got this game. Like I said, I tried to pre-order it and then I forgot about it. And then there was a weekend where I was like, I feel like shit. I'm just going to stay inside alone and play video games all weekend. Like I'm not doing shit, but I'm going to go like buy like a game to play, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I went to, uh, whatever Funko Land or Electronics Boutique or where the fuck it was at the time. And I went in and I saw this game on the shelf used for $12 and it had like just come out. Mm. And I was like, huh, that's kind of weird, but I want to play this game. So I bought it and I took it home and I beat it like all in a weekend and I fucking hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and like I kept it though because I had this collection and yeah. I wasn't going to take it back for the 25 cents they would have given me for it. Yeah, And so... And later I ended up flipping it for some money, which was kind of funny, but playing it again, I didn't hate it, but I can clearly see why I hated it. And I think a big part is like, it's so Resident Evil 2, but it came out in like, you know, six years after Resident Evil 2. Yeah, this came out in December 2004. I mean, this is two years after the Resident Evil 1 remake on GameCube. Yeah, which is why. So just like, yeah, I mean, same year as Silent Hill 4. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> same year as Echo Night Beyond, which is the same company, but just feels so much more advanced. It's a very different experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that it it's still frustrating now. Like things about this game are really frustrating. Yeah. But... And I mean, like some of it, 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 like the game straight up lies to you. <laughs> like very early yeah. in the game, uh, you find a note, of course, because it's fucking Resident Evil. You find a note that says, uh, do not run. Be as quiet as possible. If you make any noise, a gaki will detect your presence. Uh-huh. And it's like, holy shit. So I'm like, there's a run button, so I'm not supposed to run. I, I don't know if that's just bad translation or bad instruction because it's totally not true. This game has a lot of poor translation. Yeah, and it is problematic. It, yeah, well, and I actually I did a little bit of research and there's some stuff in there that actually kind of changes the game it's so poorly translated Mm -hmm. but there's also just a lot of you know kind of -of run-of-the-mill stuff like typos and misspellings yeah Uh, there's a lot of the sacred the sacred cloth is almost always referred to as the scared cloth which is kind of fun (laughs) yeah there's a lot of scared cloths in this game but you know this game has slash had especially it came out a really good hook which is that it is based on a sort of you know very old form of japanese storytelling Mm -hmm. um and it it has the kind of aesthetics and the format of like an old japanese ghost story yeah uh, which is actually really cool yeah it's super cool and in true j-horror fashion like everybody fucking dies which is cool yeah (laughs) Uh (laughs) this game basically borrows the aesthetics of old Japanese ghost stories, which are sometimes called Kaidon or Kwaidon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also like a form of storytelling that ended up in movies. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a movie called uh, Kwaidon. It's from like the 60s, right? Yep, 1965. It's really, really good. It 
is in the Criterion Collection, so it is not hard to find. Mm. Um, there are many, many ways uh, that you can watch it. I highly recommend it. It's very, very cool. Um, it's got that old school Japanese filmmaking style. There's like a lot of painted backgrounds, um, really, really crazy colors, cool lighting effects. But yeah, and you know, these are all sort of referring back to these very old Japanese ghost stories, which yeah. we talked a little bit about in the Fatal Frame episode. So I, I looked into some of the most famous ones, mm-hmm. uh, the most famous Kaidan, because there, there's usually like collections of those stories. Yeah. And there's one called Botan Doro, which is really cool. Yeah. And Homie ends up having a sex with a skeleton. So, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, these stories are, are frequently portrayed in, like, woodblock print mm-hmm. art. So, if you're familiar with that um, art form, you've definitely seen some of these images and imagery. Um, like we talked about in the Fail Frame episode, hugely influential on the J-horror boom. A lot of the designs of these monsters were just lifted straight from these old ghost stories. Um, they're very trope heavy, so there's certain like types of monsters, and this game actually has a bunch of them. Yeah, like you know the Gakis, who are like these weird little goblins. There's the Yamibito, who are sort of like old school zombies. Yeah, and of course, just ghosts. Just fucking hella ghosts. <laughs> and since they're Japanese ghosts, they don't have legs. Oh yeah, of course. That, that's a Japanese thing, right? Yeah, totally. It's like how Chinese vampires have the talisman on their forehead and they hop like bunnies. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so good. <laughs> love that shit. Have you ever seen uh, Close Encounters of the Spooky Kind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a like infamous uh, vampire fight scene. I think it's Chow Yun Fat, like an early Chow Yun Fat. Yeah. <laughs> and he fights this fucking bouncing vampire. It's so tight. Yeah, I love that shit. Yeah, we used to watch a bunch of those Chinese vampire movies just for that wackiness. Hell yeah. I love it. Yeah, so this game, I think, does successfully borrow that aesthetic and storytelling style. And also the sort of, like, later filmic version of it, which incorporated, you know, like I said, different sorts of color, lighting, different kinds of structural and storytelling techniques. Yeah, This game has a lot of interesting structure to its storytelling. Yeah, and it really lays on the atmosphere, and it... It's it's a it's a real spooky presentation that kind of lingers with you. That stuff like Resident Evil doesn't really do. Yeah, it's got really good sound design. Yeah, really um, good sound design. Really good ambient sound. Mm-hmm. It does shit in like the extreme foreground or extreme background. Yep. And not with like jump scare sound effects or anything. It'll just be like a subtle ghost floating by. Yeah. And it it really makes it unsettling. Yeah. And sometimes you're just hearing like breathing somewhere off screen. And the fucking camera is so restrictive that it, like, never shows you where you want to see. Yeah. Now, here's the other side of that. Is that this game also has a bunch of really stupid jump scares in it. <laughs> like, don't get it twisted. And that was one of my big gripes with it back in the day when I played it was that I felt like it is juggling a bunch of different elements. And I wasn't always sure if the horror element avoided just kind of being shoehorned in. Because there's cool stuff like that. Like... You'll be tracking a character or following an enemy or something, and they'll appear in the foreground or background, like you said. Very cool, subtle stuff. Mm-hmm. But then there's just like, oh, a body falls at you, and it makes a loud noise. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you look through a hole, and a ghost jumps at you. And it's like, it, it, it's a mix, it's a, and it's a weird mix, because there's moments of it being very cool and subtle, and moments of it just being like, just 
kind of like facepalm inducing. Yeah. Like, re- <laughs> really, guys? I kind of liked them. I didn't have any like layers of fear two moments or anything. Well, it's because they're really vanilla. Like I, I, I didn't think any of them were even like I never jumped even while playing this game. The game has these really great atmospheric moments, but then it has a lot of stuff like that's kind of dumb or just dead space. Like, I think this game is sort of confused about what it is. Like, is it a mood piece? Is it a, a horror showcase? Like, you know, and that that was kind of my my impression of it. But I definitely don't want to take away from the parts of it that are really cool. And some of the, even like the cutscenes are really cool. The cutscenes are really well done. Yeah, they're very weird, but in a cool way. Like, it well, okay, first of all, you have to fucking switch the voices to Japanese. Oh, I made the mistake of not realizing there was a Japanese option until oh, I no. beat it. So I, the whole thing? Yes, I beat it and then I was like, "Oh man, there's a Japanese option." Well, and that's that's wild because you have to beat the game twice. <laughs> <laughs> One of the main characters, she calls her sister the wrong name the whole time. The the sister's name is Kureha, and she calls her Korea. Korea. <laughs> Korea. But what's really yeah, it's so weird because the other actress who's playing this the other sister Utsuki. pronounces the Utsuki like really correctly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. They just bother the piss out of me. Yeah, it's there's just like. There's a lot of weird stuff. And the big, for me playing this game, the elephant in the room is like, so you guys, you guys like uh, fatal frame, huh? <laughs> like it, there's so much cribbed from fatal frame that it, it was just a, a kind of a bummer. Cause it's like, I, I, I felt like fatal frame did everything that this game is trying to do better they're not the same game i'm not saying that people mm. shouldn't play this game for that reason but having played fail frame recently yeah it did kind of bum me out that's what i'm saying hmm i might like this better than fatal frame one i'm not going to say that about the whole series because i haven't played the entire fatal frame series yet but i think i like this one better than fail frame one huh well it, so you know just to get the commonalities out of the way it's it's in a spooky haunted japanese mansion first of all yeah so you know as a westerner i thought the architecture was kind of confusing yeah. to navigate for sure. if i wasn't popping open the fucking menu uh for the map constantly which, which is not a negative it's just you know a thing and i don't know they do the same shit with uh locked doors with like seals like magic seals on the doors which is super annoying and not as easy to follow as something like the armor key for the armor door and the shield yeah. key for the shield door well and here is my problem with that um was mostly in the level and scenario design here because in fatal frame I totally grant your criticism that the whole like take a picture of something and then get a nonsense direction to go back to this other place you've already been to. Yeah. It's it's not great. Okay. Sure. Okay. It's not great. This game kind of has the same thing except you don't get a clue. You just wander around <laughs> checking rooms until yes. you find the, and I found personally that I never went back to the right place. So there's uh, especially in the first scenario in this game, I feel like there's a bunch of like dead ends and you'll go in one direction until you hit a dead end and you're like, well, fuck, I guess I got to go back to the previous area. 
And so you end up going to the previous area after wasting time, and you realize that something changed. Yeah. So you can progress, which is weird. There's like event-based progression where like you'll see somebody walking in a different direction, and then you follow them, and then you can finally progress. But it doesn't make a lot of sense, and there's like backtracking that really makes you question what you're doing. Yeah, totally. And that gets repeated a lot through the game. It was just really, really frustrating for me because it was like I felt like I was doing it wrong, but there isn't a right way to do it, like unless you had a guide and you knew where to go. Yeah, essentially it, it ends up boiling down to clearing every room on the map, and then you'll find a... So instead of keys, you get like bloody rags with different numbers of dots on them. <laughs> yeah. And the numbers of dots represent the order of the planets in the solar system. Right. So the first one with one dot is the Mercury rag. I forget what they call them in the game. But then, so you can open the door with one seal on them. Right. And then so on the map, it won't say like Mercury or show the right rag or anything. On the map, it'll just give you a number. So like yeah. the doors with the number three on them have the Earth seal and the doors with four have the Mars seal, etc. So essentially you end up just looking around until you find a new bloody rag that'll let you unlock the doors that you previously found to be locked. The map is the number thing sucks. Like just cause, okay, <laughs> here's the thing about this game. You get lost a lot. And most of the time when you're changing areas, you're, there's a loading screen. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, there always is, but a lot of the areas are actually pretty small. Yeah, and sometimes they're like outside areas and they're linked together visually, but there's still a loading screen in between them. Yeah, exactly. And so like you spend a lot of the game looking either at the map or at the loading screen. Sure. And like, so when you're trying to just pull up your map and get a quick reference of where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do and those numbers, like it sucks. Yeah. But the map in general is good. I mean, sure. it labels when things are blocked. It labels when doors are locked. It does annotate, but it doesn't annotate as thoroughly as something like Silent Hill. Right. But it's more, I guess it's more than I expected because sure. once again, this is another jarring thing about this game is like if you played it when it came out, it came out in 2004. We've had all these games come out that have like advanced the form. And then this one is harking back a lot to Fail Frame 1. Which, if you've heard our Fail Frame 1 episode, we say <laughs> repeatedly, it feels like a PS1 game. And I think this game <laughs> has a lot of like PS1 type of shit going on. Yeah, so, not presentation, but maybe in the way your character like turns and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's more of like an animation first gameplay choice. Like, they want the animations to be fluid, so things yeah. like turning are kind of slow. Right. But yeah, so it's like you crack open this map and, you know, part of you is like, wow, this is a really cool map. You know, I'm glad I have this. And then part of you is like, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's kind of how a lot of stuff is like, I mean, you know, another thing you do end up doing a lot in this game, which I felt like sort of pulled a bit from the horror side of it uh, is there's a lot of combat. Um, yeah, early on the game kind of hints at maybe combat being skippable if you're quiet, which is like super not it's true. It's bullshit. Just kill everyone. It's yeah. You just have to kill everyone and everything. I mean, I, I think honestly, 
there was like one area that I just ran or a couple areas where I just ran past the enemies, but then I ended up having to kill them later because I had to backtrack and I was lost. And I was like, I'm not fighting these guys or running past these guys every time. I'm just going to kill them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so the second and third scenarios, the combat does get better because those characters suck less at fighting. And like, it makes sense that they suck less at fighting because of like their roles in the story. But yeah, the first character you play as, uh, Utsuki... She is not good at fighting at all. And she yeah. just has a dagger and she's really slow at it. And uh, if you want to use magic, it like takes forever to switch between your dagger to the magic. Even once, like you said, I think I think that's a really good way to put it, that it's animation first. Because yeah. like everyone has like a pretty satisfying looking attack animation. Like, and they're all different, but mm-hmm. they're they're really weird to actually use like i never really got a feel for how far or close i was supposed to be to an enemy like to actually get it off right right i ended up at towards the end of the game i ended up just like rushing the bad guys and hitting the attack button as fast as possible and every time there was like a lull in the animation i would use that right lull to move forward the other thing you can do in combat, and this is what makes this game, game's combat um, different, is that you can use magic, and there's like a magic system that's based around cards. Yeah. So you have two buttons. Two of your face buttons are just attack buttons, and you can either... Square and triangle. Yeah, square and triangle. So you can either leave it blank, and that's your like weapon mm. button to do a physical attack, or you can um, attach one or two cards to those buttons and you can cast a spell. And there's basically two types of spells. There's either a basic projectile attack, like a magic missile or a fireball. Yeah. Uh, that there's like, you know, four different power levels of. And then there are summons. So you can summon some form of creature to come and help you in combat. And they vary wildly. Yeah, like a little spider or a wolf or giant ogres. Yeah. And... So it's cool, kind of. It's it's interesting because like it ends up having the same sort of feels like guns in a survival horror game because you have to do a lot of exploration to make sure you get all the ammo. For yeah, you want to save your rockets for the boss, you know? Yeah, so you're, uh, exactly. Yeah, I ended up using the knife for almost everything and saving the magic for like really populated rooms or boss characters because yeah. there's... I mean, I don't know if it was like this for you, but there was one boss that really, like, tore my shit up. I think all the last three bosses you fight in the game are just a pain. Yeah. And it's weird because it's like a difficulty spike. I mean, the game is pretty easy up until that point, mm-hmm. and then suddenly it's like, whoa, hello. Like, did you want to do this now? Yeah. Well, the thing I was going to say about the magic, though, that's kind of interesting, is that certain things about it are surprisingly intuitive. Like, so you have to aim... And it's just visual. Like, you just point your character as close as you can get to being pointed at the enemy, and then you fire off the spell, right? Uh, And it'll hit if you're not facing totally the wrong direction. And that's, like, kind of intuitive. And I was like, oh, wow, this actually works pretty well. Um, Same with summons, except they're a little wackier. I think some of the summons are better than others Mm -hmm. just because they're very... Like, there's one that basically summons, like, a mine... And if the enemy walks into it, it explodes. Yeah. 
that was like a lot easier to use than like uh, you know summoning some of the animal friends because sometimes they would just stand in the corner and not do anything, which was a little bit frustrating. Sometimes that's fine though because all all you'll need is to distract the boss from you so you can get in some fireballs or something, you know? Right. Yeah. No, totally. But then other things about the system are like super fucking annoying. Like you said, the animation to switch between cards and your melee weapon is so fucking slow. Especially the first girl, Utsuki, because she will like... Oh my god. She'll like very deliberately like put her knife in her pocket and then pull cards out of her pocket. <laughs> like, and, yeah. And so every time you have to switch back and forth, uh, it takes forever. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. And like, uh, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. Utsuki is just bad at combat. Like that does speed up with the second two characters. And then the third character is basically a fucking killing machine. So Right. She's like a knight. Yeah. So the here's the other thing, though, that's very annoying about the combat. When you combine it with that slow animation bullshit, uh, is that it just doesn't feel, like, sticky at all. Like, mm. enemies don't take knockback damage. Enemies honestly don't really seem to react to what you do. It's like you can just slash them and they'll stop for a second, but they'll just keep getting closer to you until you kill them. And so especially early in the game, if you're using the knife and it takes like eight hits to kill an enemy, like it's really, really frustrating because you just you're doing it right, but it feels like you're not sure. So like with the peon enemies, like the Gaki, you just mash the button and hope for the best. This is also coupled with the health mechanic in this game that I guess we should talk about. Um, yeah. You have very little life in this game, and you can actually get killed really fast, but you can meditate at any point and get all your health back. It does take yeah. a minute to get all your health back, but at any point you can just stop and meditate and grow your health bar back. Unfortunately, running will get rid of your health too so i would end up like running through areas and then right before going through the door to the next area just meditating and then walk through the door and i just do that over and over again when you have to sort of constantly be meditating just to make sure that your health is up because i'm gonna run everywhere because there's a lot of backtrack yeah and your character moves really slow and you don't run um, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny that we're talking about another game like this after Blasphemous, but it's like, yeah, the traversal in this game could be such a bummer because like mm-hmm. you're running and then having to manage your health, backtracking, but you don't know, you know, you need to backtrack, but you don't know where you need to go because the game won't tell you. <laughs> and then you're opening your map a lot. You're looking at a lot of loading screens in blurry darkness. Thank you for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness. You can also find and interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. All the relevant links are at zerobrightness.com. We'll see you out there. This game gets the also, I said this about Fatal Frame, but this game gets the Silent Hill 1 uh, Iterate Gloom Award. Like, holy shit. Like, it's so weirdly dark sometimes. And it's so blurry, like, at all points. It's always blurry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's crazy filtering and they just turned out the goddamn lights. Yeah. And so sometimes, like, 
all those things together and plus some wacky camera angles. I mean, so this game has fixed camera, like a classic survival horror game. It's not a problem for most of the game, but there's a few areas where you're just like looking at your map, like where the fuck am I going? It's usually in the transitions between two camera angles. I get really confused. Yeah, and there's certain areas too, like, so the the game, the map is drawn and this manner is laid out in a way where there's a lot of little passageways and hidden kind of walls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that combined with the general traversal wackiness combined with the camera makes certain areas just like inaccessible. Like uh, Utsuki's room. I went back and forth in that place like four or five times. I still have no fucking clue how it's laid out or how I got through that area. There was a door on the map in Utsuki's room that led to the little temple on the hill. Yeah. And I don't know how many times I looked at that map and I just didn't realize there was a fucking door in the back of that room. It's camera angle thing because it's it's like it's never fully in any frame and it's in like the corner of one frame. Yeah, it's crazy. It's wacky. I mean, I think... Having played Fatal Frame, if you're me, I mean, maybe maybe it like hurts your enjoyment a little bit, but I think it also just helps your ability to like play this game at all because like you'll kind of get what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. I think if I hadn't played Fatal Frame, I don't know how I would have played this well, game. There's another thing that this game lifts from Fatal Frame are the uh, weird door puzzles. Yeah. Like, is this a thing in Asia where like doors are like tied to weird puzzles? Yeah. <laughs> like Zodiac puzzles and shit. Like, who does this? Uh, but yeah, there's like three different flavors of door puzzles in this game. And I don't know. They just seem really out of place to me. Well, and there's like a really like, did you figure out like the dumbass way to do it? Because like, yeah, there's, there's a like way the, to do- a t- there's a turning puzzle where you have to like turn the dials like, yeah, concentrically. And when you get it right, it makes a different sound. So you just keep turning it until it makes the right. sound. Yeah. But you get a note in a room whose only purpose is to give you this note that explains yeah. to you like the smart guy way to do it. Yeah. But I had I had already unlocked this puzzle by the time I got that note and I read it and I was like, why the fuck would you do that when you can just bang a rock against it for two minutes and solve it that note is in a part where you would have had to backtrack significantly (laughs) to get back to the dial yeah exactly Mm -hmm. it's it's really weird and yeah another thing that i was like oh so you guys like fail frame huh (laughs) yeah two things that this game does to dissuade you from running around is that uh there's like offering plates of food in a lot of places Uh uh-huh and if you run, you'll knock them over and summon a ghost. There are certain other rooms that are just spooky. Like you'll walk into a room and it's like really dark and bloody and stuff. And if you run in that room or in that area, you'll summon ghosts. Yeah. But ghosts are really easy to kill. They're like one hit enemies. So I was always just like, fuck it all. Just run through it and kill them. Yeah, for sure. It's another weird thing in this game that like, so they tell you not to run. Mm-hmm. And they initially are like, don't run because these peon enemies will attack you. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's bullshit because they're going to attack you anyway. Yeah. You can't escape it. You have to fight everything. But then they put in this mechanic called Tempests and Vertigo. Yes. 
Uh, so the things that you're referring to when you like knock something over and the ghosts get angry is called a tempest. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is everything goes darker and blurrier than it already is. Yeah. And then a bunch of ghosts come out at you and you have to, they just take one hit to kill like one hit with your melee weapon. So it's, it's not a big deal. You kill some ghosts and then you meditate. Everything goes back to normal. Mm-hmm. You can, if you don't meditate, you can get vertigo, which is like the same effect, but more extreme and you can't use magic anymore. Yeah. And that also happens uh, if you're in a battle and your health is really low. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden you won't be able to cast spells and the screen goes really blurry. Yeah. in like vertigo mode. Yeah. So I just didn't really get what this added to the game. It's, it's once again, I think it goes back to that sort of weird atmosphere problem the game has where it sets up a really cool atmosphere, but then it does some other stuff that it was almost like trying to encode into the gameplay mechanics, the atmosphere of the game and some of the choices they made are kind of wacky. I I think all it does is make you panic and accelerate your death, (laughs) which is problematic in this game because one thing I noted while playing it is that sometimes the save areas are really far away from each other. The save areas are weird where they chose to put the saves are weird, especially early in the game. Uh, man, there's even a stretch where like I didn't save for 45 minutes. And that's like really problematic in a game like this because you can die really fast. Yeah, you can you can die in an encounter um, very easily. Like I guess that that's maybe a little bit of that Dark Souls thing going on where it's like you can get <laughs> toasted by you can get toasted by rats basically. But um, yeah, I just I I think some of that extra stuff in this game is just kind of an annoyance. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, I think that the. So the parts in this game where I liked it the most was when I was in like a cool looking area and I was just kind of wandering around or, and then I got to see a cool cutscene and yeah. like stuff like that. But the parts I didn't like was when I was just doing just raw traversal item collecting, trying to figure out how to end the little scenario I was in. Absolutely. And I just kept knocking over food bowls and fighting ghosts yeah. and just kind of being bored, you know? Or like going to like a far end of the map and thinking to myself like why did i come over here and then you backtrack and you realize something changed and like it didn't televise anything to you yeah no totally one weird thing that they do for traversal in this game is that um a lot of times it'll block your path with just like really silly nonsensical shit that a normal human being would just like step over and continue. Yeah. Like th- so th- sometimes there'd be like a dead body in the way or like a couple rocks. Yeah. <laughs> or like a board. Well, and some of them even have like, I don't know if I want to call it a puzzle, but I guess it's like a bit of a puzzle attached to it. So like there's like a main staircase into the manor. Yeah. That's like blocked by some debris and then after a certain point there's a gaki there on the other and side you have to like yeah yeah and you have to like draw aggro to get it to clear the debris <laughs> and then you have to kill it but like the way you draw aggro is by taking a certain exit and if you but there's two other exits you can take and if you don't take that exit it'll just like stay blocked until you do yeah so <laughs> i actually was just like wandering around until i accidentally mm-hmm. did that and then it it fixed itself. This is that's in the first scenario. In the second scenario, there's a similar thing with just like a zombie body that's just sitting there stanking. Yeah, and it's just like, why don't you just get up and fight me, dude? You're just stanking up the joint. Yeah, I do like that. Like, there, there's corpses like littered everywhere, and then some of them like you'll pass them a hundred times, 
and then finally at the third scenario it'll wake up and attack you like yeah. it's like oh old friend you're finally awake yeah it's it's funny and it's weird and it's kind of charming but it also is just frustrating yeah like uh i i think that once again when you get really deep into certain areas and you're just trying to like get out of there it's really annoying and when like i said when you get caught in that loop of looking at your map looking at a loading screen being in a new area yeah. looking at your map again looking at another loading screen it it kind of starts to feel like drudgery but it it never lasts so long that you are like i i want to like quit but it it definitely sucks some of the fun out of the experience one thing the game does with traversal that i thought was cool is that there's like a lot of like blood trails in the game and sometimes they'll like show up like after you do something and so a lot of the traversal has to do with like following trails of blood and then also with like spooky npcs you'll see out of like the corner of your eye or the corner of a camera frame yeah totally and i think that the dynamic environments are one of the coolest thing about this game Mm. so yeah like stuff falls over blood trails appear things change doors open and then signal to you that they're open by like flapping in the wind there's some really good atmospheric stuff i just wish the game was a little more explicit about like this is now where you should maybe head towards yeah yeah i don't know there's a bit of the wandering i i think early in the game it's jarring and annoying but then once I was more comfortable, I had more fun with it on the second and third chapters. Sure. Especially since I just had kept my own pace higher because I was already familiar with the mansion. Well, yeah. And one thing that this game nails 100% that I remember thinking like, man, this is really cool, is this sort of Lovecraftian underworld like ne- like continually expanding hellish landscape thing. Yeah. Um so basically the game keeps sending you further and further underground and it's cool because it's not like a cave. It's like this place that has vistas that just keeps opening up more and more and you keep seeing new areas but you don't really understand where they are or where you are. It's uh it's reminiscent of that J horror movie I recommended to you Marabito. Um, sort of. In the sense, yeah, like in the sense that it's a take on uh, At the Mountains of Madness and it's a reference to this sort of like expansive underworld rather than like just like a dark, you know, mm. sort of cramped underworld. I think this game does that really well. Well, I think we can't really talk about that area without spoiling story. So maybe here we should drop a light spoiler warning and say, just like in Fatal Frame, there's an underground beneath the castle. And to me, those caves felt more like a, like an insect dwelling. Sure. You know what I mean? So it wasn't man-made, even though there were like some underground rooms that are man-made. I felt like right. it was a insect dwelling first. Then there's some, some kind of weird, weird creatures and stuff to suggest that. Yeah. So I guess, as well. I guess maybe we should talk a little about the story now. Um, sure. Did we catch all the nuts and bolts? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the presentation, um, like the, the cutscenes are really, really good. Yeah. The pre-rendered ones are really nice too. Like, yeah, very impressive, really good character models. 
Oh, uh, speaking of cutscenes, I really liked how the intro cutscene fills in part of the story once you kind of like get it a couple hours into the game. Then yeah, you watch the totally. the opening cutscene, then you're like, oh fuck, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Like, well, and and you know, let's take a second to talk about the stories and gameplay structure because it is cool like i said i i've alluded to earlier i have my issues with it but it is a cool idea so essentially this game is separated into three yeah and so there's basically there's three different characters yeah you can choose between the first two but the third one's only unlocked after you beat the first two yeah, so the first the first character, uh, the yin phase, is uh, Utsuki. She's a shrine maiden. The second character, uh, Sakuya, is an exorcist, like a junior exorcist. Yeah, and so it's basically like the first story is the first phase. First story is basically just walking you through sort of the basic story of the game. Mm-hmm. You are introduced to the second character... Um, you're introduced to the main s- sort of conflict in the game. And I think you get a little bit more insight into what's going on. You know, uh, we'll talk about why. And then the second phase is the same story, but told from a different perspective, which is this, yeah, this sort of uh, understudy, this disciple of this great, like esoteric master mm-hmm. who is there to investigate this this manner that clearly seems haunted. She kind of has a different perspective on the story. And then the last one is like a totally different character that acts sort of as the epilogue to the game and shows you the ending. Yeah. And she kind of just shows up. Yeah. She totally just shows up. And when she did, I was like, wait, (laughs) did I miss something? She, She does get mentioned once or twice in some notes around the mansion, but yeah, yeah, her showing up just seems like really like, curveball yeah and so uh the thing that's cool about it is it gives you this different perspective on the story there's a pretty cool central hook where you're trying to figure out like which characters are real and which characters are human and there's a whole bunch of crazy psychedelic shit going on that's it's kind of cool the thing that sucks about it is that the second scenario is like 90% the same as the first and it's really just after a certain point you basically get to see a big like gap that you didn't get to see in the first scenario but that's also mostly filled with bosses like that's where the difficulty kicks up is like there's a couple of like pretty gnarly bosses and so for me I don't really understand why the second scenario either wasn't optional or the second scenario was just like just that section yeah i feel like it would may have been more interesting if it was more like onimusha where you jumped between characters yeah instead of doing two separate playthrough scenarios i think it was probably padded for length it is it totally was and it's funny because the last scenario has like a weird time and space jump that made mm-hmm. me think like, God, why couldn't they have just done this in the second scenario? Like they clearly yeah. skip the whole like wandering through the mansion part. Yeah, totally. And that's what kind of drove me crazy. And I think initially when I played this game was a big reason why I didn't like it. And I think it's still a problem now. I mean, 
not to say that you won't like this game because of it, but if you have problems with it, you're going to really notice those problems when you have to play through the game again to see the ending. I mean, it's it's an eight-hour game. It should probably be a six-hour game. Yeah. So it's not like a huge time sink, but yeah, you notice the retreading for sure. Yeah. I, it also took me longer than that because I got lost a lot. I think I was more closer to the 10 hours. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah you, I got lost a lot. So... All the door locks are the same, but you do start in different areas of the mansion. Sure. And so that makes traversal a lot different. And then, yeah, just going through the mansion, you go through it in a completely different order. Yeah. And uh, there are some areas that are unique to each playthrough. Um, But yeah, you definitely feel that retreading. Yeah, but I I did like that it kind of switches perspectives and especially in the second scenario, there's some really interesting story stuff, mm-hmm. um, especially in that back half of it when you're basically past the stuff that's just a pure retread. So it's, it's kind of got that, you know, looking at different, looking at the same story from different perspectives kind of thing. Was that Rashomon that did that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's got a little bit of that, but it also, it's a little clunky. Resident Evil two also did it. You may have heard of it. that's well and yeah it's like what we talked about you know in that first episode where it's like it's it's such a weird thing that it's like okay well i guess resident evil can get a pass because they started it but this is weird to see other people do it it's like didn't didn't you think this was dumb did you think this was cool like (laughs) yeah so all right let's talk about some story because i think the story is really compelling in this game yeah for sure and the way it's told in a really not chronologically piecemeal sort of way like like you said like with the two scenarios you go through the same shit twice but you still get different chunks of the story at each time so sure. i think it's told in a really cool interesting drip fed way that you know from soft came to master later with with the way dark souls handles its lore but right so yeah, you start as uh, Utsuki. She's a shrine maiden with her sister, Kureha. And their dad is a high priest named Doman. Um, they live in a shrine close to the Fujiwara Manor. And Lord Fujiwara and Lady Fujiwara live there with their uh, daughter and, you know, staff and servants and everything. Right. Um, but these two areas are linked and they're basically the main parts of the game, like the Fujiwara Manor, the garden around in front of it, and then to the side, uh, the mountain with the shrine. That's basically the gameplay area. The father, Doman, uh, he hears some news from the manor, so he leaves and leaves a note for Utsuki and Kureha. Um, he disappears for a couple of days, so they decide to go walk to the manor and uh, investigate. So that's kind of how the game starts. Those are the yin phase characters. Simultaneously, the yang phase, Sakuya shows up with a small team of exorcists. They were kind of like called as backup uh, by Doman. It's Sakuya, her older brother, um, this kind of like chubby kid that's annoying, <laughs> and then uh, a senior exorcist. And so they all end up like, of course, it's, it's Resident Evil, so immediately they all split up. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, well, that's kind of the setup from both scenarios. Right. And what's cool about it, because, uh, I, I mean, I don't think we need to run through every plot point sure. beat by beat. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you 
Okay, we're going to spoil it, so I don't know if that's a problem. There's a a half page of broken sentences here. I think that's enough to cover it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's still, the way it unfolds is is pretty cool. And, um, you know, I'd recommend experiencing it. It's cool. But the thing that I liked about it is that, so in the first phase, it's all about the two sisters. Mm -hmm. So you're playing as Utsuki, and then you're seeing things from her perspective, but it's like, pretty uh uh pretty clear that she i don't know she's kind of freaking out yeah like she's an unreliable narrator oh totally Uh, yeah she has visions she sees things that don't seem to be real and so pretty quickly you figure out that it's like okay we really don't know where her sister is yeah because like something's wrong with her sister (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're both in the like opening cutscene, mm-hmm. but then after that, we don't really see her sister, you know, in a normal state like ever. Yeah. So one of the only survivors in the mansion is the uh, Fujiwara's daughter. I think her name's Ayako. Uh huh. And the moment she sees Utsuki, she panics and freaks out and runs into her room and locks the room. And one of the major puzzles in the beginning of the game is figuring out how to unlock that room, which fucking cool side note to do it. You have to fight Lord Fujiwara and he's like one of these zombified things. Yeah. And when he dies, one of the coolest shit happens. Like he's got this like mortal wound on his throat and it like accents it a few times. And you could tell that's how he died by like a big slit on the throat. Yeah. And so after you defeat him, you walk out of the room and there's this like dope scene where like, someone's head starts growing out of his mortal wound. Yeah. It's so creepy. It's straight out of like Junji Ito's Tomie. Yeah. What a great visual moment. Yeah. And there's actually a few really cool like body horror moments in this game. Um, Like people transforming. uh, And there's even like one enemy that's just like, it's basically like a person half spilling out of a cocoon kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is super cool. Anyways, Uh, um, so yeah, you're, the puzzles to get into Ayako's room, and once you do, uh, like this twisted version of your sister, like sneaks out from like under her dresser and takes her away. Yeah, it's just really creepy. Yeah, and, like you keep seeing this sort of weird, dark version of your sister that has like purple smoke around her and is clearly pretty fucking evil. Yeah. Also, there's really evil, creepy twins. Yeah. So there's these twins (laughs) that are kind of like guiding you around, but they're clearly like up to no good. And they're like Uh, giddy that everyone's dead. Yeah. They're super evil, clearly, and creepy (laughs) as hell. But so you start to get all these clues about what is going on in this manner. Mm -hmm. And essentially, there's some sort of ritual being performed here uh that's related to kind of like a demonic infestation that these twins are clearly a part of and also this mulberry tree is clearly a part of mm-hmm. um there's basically like an evil tree that well, there's two uh, evil trees yeah and there's like silkworms coming off of it yeah <laughs> and so like the combination of all this is like a ritual where you can put people into these wicker baskets and have them reborn 
Yeah. So if someone dies, you can put them in a wicker basket with one of these silkworms from the mulberry tree. And they'll wake up the next day like nothing happened. Right. But then a few months later, they'll start to rot. And so they'll need to be put into the basket again with something a little more advanced. Like um, one of the people asks for a raven. Yeah. And then it's a cat. And then it keeps growing to like humans. Yeah. And apparently if you do this nine times, the person is permanently resurrected. Right. And... So the thing that's cool about this is that you, similar actually to Silent Hill 1 with Dahlia kind of, kind of like giving you all this misinformation, uh, mm-hmm. you're getting a lot of misinformation about what, why they're actually doing this. Yes. Um, so yeah. there's a bunch of things at play. Like it's, it's, a, it's a cool narrative because there's a lot of layers here. Because on the one hand, you have Domon, who's your dad and who's like this head, you know, monk guy. He's saying it, like, cures people of this disease. Like, mm-hmm. and, and there's some notes to that effect as well, where it's like, oh, like, there's this strange disease that's turning people into zombies. Um, this ritual will cure them. Uh, and then you've got the twins who are basically saying, oh, these people will be reborn. And it's, I don't know, immediately you're just kind of like, wait, that's not the same thing. Like, what is the point of this? And then there's another wrinkle, which is that we find out that uh, Utsuki accidentally killed her sister. Yeah. So I think it's like three years before the events of this game, Utsuki accidentally pushed Koreha off of a cliff and killed her. And that was the first time she ever saw the twins. And the twins said, hey, if you want her to live, put her in this basket. Yeah. So that's kind of how all of this started. It's it's inferred that Doman was already working on the ritual because he pulled spikes out of the mulberry tree, which had repressed its power. Right. So, yeah, Doman learned of the ritual and started fucking around. <laughs> and essentially, you know, under the mansion, he was like doing all of these experiments with people. Uh, it's. It's, it's kind of revealed that the Gaki are people that have gone through the ritual, ritual but were removed prematurely. Yeah. And then the zombies are people that are just, like, waiting for their next uh, thing to merge with. Because essentially what has to happen is that your dead body is put in the basket with something to merge with. And the first merging is with the silkworm. Yeah. And apparently the silkworm is what officiates all of this. Right. But yeah, so what, what they'll do is that they'll kill somebody and drag them back to their basket and then climb into it and then merge with them. And that's what you were seeing with uh, the Lord Fujiwara fight where the, where the woman like starts popping out of his neck. Yeah, is that like an, it, it's like it was like a canceled merging. Yeah, for sure. And it's really fucking creepy. And you see several of them. Um, there's one mini boss fight where uh, it's creepy because uh, well, it turns out you know of course you know the sister that died needs to merge. Yeah, and she merges with Sakuya's brother. Yeah, but beforehand they're like flirting and being all cute and laughing uh-huh. and shit. And then she merges with him, but you interrupt it. And so it's like you're fighting your dead brother with, like, uh, 
Kureha like half popped out of it. Yeah, it's super. It's intense. really creepy. Yeah, and there's another one where you're fighting a uh, Lady Fujiwara, uh-huh. and um, her head pops out, but it's on like a millipede body. Yeah. So, so she's got like a really long, creepy well, neck with this millipede. That's what I was neck. referring oh. to earlier. There's some really good body horror stuff yeah. in this game. I think the other thing I really like about this narrative, and you kind of covered the whole space that I was thinking of, uh, what's really cool is that the way the game reveals these plot points to you is sort of weird and out of order. So yes. initially, it's like they show you uh, Kureha's death. Uh, or sorry, Korea. <laughs> Korea. <laughs> Korea. Uh, they show you Korea's death, and they frame it in a weird way where it looks like an accident. But then Utsuki, Utsuki's like, "Oh, I killed you," and then Korea's like ghost is like, "You fucking killed me, bro." But it's like clear that she didn't. <laughs> so then you're like, "Well, what's going on there?" And then you're starting to wonder, like, "Wait, is Korea a ghost? Is she a monster?" Like. Mm-hmm. What is this? And you finish the whole first phase without any real answers. You know that, like, yeah. Utsuki accidentally... Well, Utsuki was holding a ladder for Korea, accidentally lets go of it because the twins actually startled her. Scared her. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's how she fell off this mountain and died. So it's really the twins that killed her. Yeah. You find that out, but you don't really know what's going on with Korea. And then in the second scenario is where all that shit happens with... Um, like with Sakia's brother. Um, yeah. And that stuff is crazy because in that scene, so that's like kind of after, or that's that gap in the first scenario that you don't see, mm-hmm. that you only see in the second scenario. Um, right. And like in that time, it's actually really jarring. So first Utsuki shows up with your brother and it's like, oh, okay, Utsuki's here. All right. And then like Koreha's there and you're like, wait. What? Who is this creepy ass woman? And she's clearly like, she has him in like a thrall where like, yeah, yeah they're like playing mm-hmm. with a silkworm and he's, yeah, he's sort of like <laughs> cool. And yeah. it, it's, it's really weird. And that, that little it, area in the game with all those cutscenes is really, really awesome. The direction is really weird. It's almost Lynchian kind of like, mm. there's a point where Utsuki's like, is this a dream? And I was like, yeah, what the fuck is this? Like, it's really cool. It's really cool, and I really enjoyed that aspect of the storytelling. It's one of the few parts in the game where you're bunched up with other people, and it's really unnerving. Yeah. Because, yeah, they're like, everybody's hanging under the mulberry tree, which at this point you know is, like, evil. Yeah. And they're, like, giggling and having a good time where there's, like, like corpses are littering the grounds of the <laughs> castle and shit. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And yeah, like that element of it is really cool. And I think that part of the game is really cool. And that's kind of like near to the end of the second scenario. And that was also why I wish that the first scenario just went into that part instead of making you go back and play the first part again. It was kind of frustrating. Well, one thing you also realize towards the end of these scenarios is that um, Utsuki, your main character from the first scenario, her face starts rotting. Yeah. And at the end of the first scenario, she meets up with Sakuya and tries to eat yeah. a fucking face. <laughs> She's clearly, like, lost it. I mean, the other thing that becomes clear is that Domon is, their dad is, like, evil as shit. Yeah. And, like, he's, like, <laughs> a super bad dude. And 
He's basically been doing these experiments on people t- as like some sort of worship exercise and like worshiping some evil dark god or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, but yeah, Utsuki is basically just following his orders because near the end of her scenario, he's like, "Go get in the wicker box, motherfucker," and she's like, "Okay, dad." Um, yeah, why don't you just go die? <laughs> and like. Yeah, so both scenarios, though, end at that same spot where Uski's like, help me, help me, and then she basically tries to eat Sakia's face. Yeah, uh, after warning her to get away from her. Yeah, so she's clearly, like, she's all messed up, and she don't know what to do. That's when Seimei shows up, yeah. the hero of the third chapter, and she just, like, immediately comes in and starts fucking shit up. Yeah. She's got, like, the dopest deck of Pokemon cards. Uh-huh. So she can summon these, like, giant demon bros to help. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. And she has also got a big knife on a stick, which yeah. kills everything. Yeah. No, so here's a funny little tidbit about this, uh, which is that, yeah, first of all, when she shows up, you've seen her name in notes. Same name yeah. is her name. You've seen it in notes, but you Doman's have- not very fond of her. No. It seems like they have an adversarial relationship. Right. But you don't really know what's going on. And so I was kind of like investigating this because I was like, man, what the fuck is going on here? Mm. So I think this may have been... So it is kind of out of nowhere, I think, no matter what, that this character just shows up and she's basically a superhero. Uh, But what is interesting is that there is a translation thing going on because if you notice... so we've even been kind of been skirting around it too everyone in the game besides the two like sisters are spiritualists of some sort Mm -hmm. right like but the game keeps referring to them as different things so sometimes they'll call them seers yep sometimes they'll call them exorcists sometimes they call them astrologists also yeah and yeah so i guess a like a consistent translation of what they are would have been very helpful. Uh, but yeah, they're essentially like some combination of everything they refer to them as. So mm-hmm. I read somewhere that like uh, exorcist may be like the best, but it's more just like a spiritualist. So yeah. they're not really like monks. I think I maybe called them monks earlier. They're not really like monks, but they are like spiritualists they would be doing research and going around like helping people with problems or if you're Doman just doing a bunch of fucking evil shit in a cave you found underground um I mean you know you do you uh (laughs) the point here is that Seimei and Doman are supposed to basically be like colleagues who don't like each other uh who now have gone towards completely opposite sides of like the moral spectrum with Seimei Mm -hmm. essentially being like you know Gandalf the white and Doman being uh, Saruman or whatever yeah and, and apparently I, I I found this really interesting Seimei is based on a real historical person oh which is a like legendary exorcist from this period in time I think it was around like 1000 AD oh that's um, right it was originally a man but they uh, rewrote it as a female for this game huh yeah yeah that's super cool so um, it's kind of like a musashi kind of like living legend kind of thing yeah or like king king arthur excalibur bullshit you know yeah for sure or goemon which is like the same oh really thing. i didn't yeah. know goemon was real yeah he's kind of a robin hood <laughs> figure 
uh, Tight. That, that was sort of rewritten into modern media multiple times, most famously as, you know, Mystical Ninja, Gomon. It's, it's interesting that this game's story points to a larger world outside of the game, because the game is pretty... It's a pretty tight scenario. It all takes place yeah. on this one like piece of land and underground, like blah, blah, blah. But it hints that there's this larger world. I wish that was fleshed out. Like I said, I think part of that is translation, but part of it is it just kind of not being in the game, it seems. Like, I doubt that yeah. there's much more context given in the original version, you know? I, yeah, I do feel like there's a bit of, like, um, like they assume you know about this era, um, yeah. because you grew up in Japan, but it's based on the, uh, I don't know if it's, I'm pronouncing this right, but it's based on the Haiyan era or Haiyan. Yeah. Uh, 794 to 1185. It's an era where there was like no middle class at all. Either you were an elite or you were like a peasant. Yeah. Feudal Japan commonly referred yeah. to as that. It's, it, it was a short period of peace during feudal Japan. Right. And I think, I think the, um, the game actually takes place close to the capital, which I think at that point was Kyoto. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyways, uh, it was, it was like one of those eras where, um, you know, rich people got everything they wanted. So it was like, there was a lot of like really fancy architecture, like poetry and literature were like blossoming, things like that. Yeah, for sure. It was, and it's interesting to see it in this presented in this way. Cause it's not, I mean, it's a horror game. It's yeah. largely exploration based. All the characters are these kind of spiritualists and they do some kind of like anime shit, like fireballs and then summoning demons <laughs> and shit. But it, it's a surprisingly muted. And I, and I kind of wish it had a little bit more of that flavor. I liked that aspect of it. I mean, for as much shit as I'm giving it for being kind of a fatal frame rip, like, it has a unique feel. Kuan is a unique game. I don't, I don't, you know, it, it rips a lot of things from fail frame, but like, is that more of like a Japan rip though? Because we're not taking pictures. I mean, we're yeah. poking dudes over and over with a knife. I don't know. Yeah. I don't feel like it's, it's as much of a fatal frame rip as you do, you know, besides the obvious shit, it being in like a spooky Japanese mansion. Well, I just, I think the level design, the darkness, um, mm. the general look like it's, you know, the splashes of color. Uh, it, I got, I got a vibe and I feel like it has the same sort <laughs> of gameplay style where you're looking at your map and yeah, I mean, if, if you're a J horror freak, you're going to love both of these games. I mean, yeah, for sure. And, but uh, yeah, like, I mean, they, they are drawing from totally different sides of J horror. Like, like I said, fatal frame was so like, uh, that kind of like TV, horror movie vibe Mm -hmm. it was so specific um and this game is is a historical like period piece drama i guess you know yeah and that's a that's a totally different kind of style and horror for sure a little little bit of tangent there's a great movie called uh over your dead body which is an awful fucking americanized name Uh so it's like a modern modern day story about actors in a play they're doing traditional kaidan horror but um you know the shit that's happening in the horror play starts reflecting in their real lives and it's Mm -hmm. really cool everyone should go watch it yeah i haven't seen that yet i'm gonna check that out but it did remind me just the description reminds me of um don't look up which is another j-horror movie that you should totally watch um shut up on some of these names i know yeah uh uh don't look up is uh famously hideo nakata's horror movie he made before he made a little movie called ringu and um it's basically about like a like a cursed film set 
And uh, yeah, it's a really good movie. Um, bit of fun. Uh, I highly recommend it. Anyway, so this game, it's got an ending. Um, it's not much of an ending. <laughs> yeah, it's it's real quick, isn't it? So yeah, once Same shows up, it's basically like she goes and fucks Doman's shit up. And then... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been saving up all my cards the entire game, and it was like time to unleash Fury on this mofo. And I just like threw all my heaviest cards at him, and he died pretty quick. Yeah, he is kind of the only way to fight him. If you, yeah, like you just have to throw tons and tons and tons of spells at him. There's another boss like that too, uh, the Yeti. It's like a giant monkey you have to yeah. fight in the woods. Dude, that monkey fucked me up over and over again until I just unleashed hell on him. Yeah, the monkey and uh, Lady Fujiwara, the long neck millipede lady, and this last boss are all like some bullshit basically i found a trick with lady fujiwara um you fight her by a wicker box the easiest way to fight her is to just like put the wicker box in between you and her yeah and then you can kind of like edge around the corner and kill her without her ever hitting you yeah it's a cheesy tactic but it works dude actually uh yeah another fun fact about this game that calls forward to dark souls is there are multiple bosses you can cheese like that <laughs> the best one is i forget exactly which boss it is but there's a boss that you don't have to fight you can just walk away until he goes away yeah that's the uh the mini boss fight with um sakuya's brother yeah which, when he merges with um, that's right Kureha. Yeah, it's like outside of Utsuki's room. Yeah, you can yeah. just walk away and then the music stops and you go back and get the item you need. <laughs> yeah. Super funny. Um, but yeah, so Seimei fucks up Doman and then uh, basically Utsuki shows up at the end and grabs his corpse to go merge with him. Yeah, so one thing we didn't talk about, you know, Utsuki, big surprise, she ends up being part of the ritual too. And so she needs bodies turns out she's already merged eight times and she only needs one more body to merge one final time and Doman is like trying to f- get that spell off yeah and so even as he's dying he's like he didn't let me finish it man not fair <laughs> and so poetically of course Utsuki uses her dad's body as the final merge so they jump in there in the, into the wicker basket Seimei shows up to fuck shit up again but uh, Sakuya convinces her not to. Yeah. And I think out of just like morbid curiosity, Seimei lets Utsuki live. Yeah. She has a great like arrogance to her that I really love. Like she's literally just walking up like, all right, I'm just going to stab this box. And then yeah. Sakuya is like, oh, please don't do it. And is like pleading. And then she's like, well, fucking whatever. I don't know. And then she just hands her the demon suppressing spikes. She's like, take these, I guess. I'm curious to see what happens. It just fucking walks away. It's like, yeah, that's badass, dude. The credits start rolling and it shows the, the mansion the next day and it's all bright and pretty. And you see Sakuya leaving with a little, little girl version of Utsuki that's been reborn. Yeah. And she's got some like mulberry seeds on her, uh, like a little thing on her shirt. Yeah. And then they fucking walk off into the sunset together yeah. and that's the end. Well, and what's also interesting about this is there's at some point in that end section, the twins sort of say that their whole angle, they're like embodiments of this demonic evil that's inside this mulberry tree. Yeah. And they say, or they hint at, 
I think this is right. The story is, if you haven't picked up, <laughs> it's kind of confusing. Uh, they sort of say that their purpose in encouraging Domon to do all these rituals and trying to, you know, do all this evil witchcraft was to try and create another mulberry tree. Yeah, they're trying to make a third tree. So before you know, they keep mentioning to Utsuki that like, uh, you're you're our child, our beautiful like child. Yeah. So it's like these little tiny twins saying that to like an older teenage girl. Side note, this was hilarious to me because one of my <laughs> friends who I'm still friends with, uh, uh, when we were in high school, she, <laughs> I, I think this is the Japanese word for beautiful is utsukushi, which kind of sounds like utsuki. And huh. she used to just go up to our friends and she'd just like, like lightly rub her hand on the side of your face and just go in like a really deep voice, go, utsukushi. And I thought it was really fucking funny <laughs> when my friend Vanessa did this. And like when they kept saying that shit in this game, cause I had the Japanese voice on, I would just crack yeah. up every time. Just it's good. She. Yeah. Well, you know, one cool thing that we didn't cover that happens is that, um, Sakuya torches one of the mulberry trees. And after that, you just see one of the twins, but the twins always like dragging around the corpse of the yeah, other one. So dark. Which, so cool i love that yeah because that happens in the first scenario and you don't realize it mm-hmm. and there's all of a sudden one of the twins is dead and like the other one's dragging it around it's really cool yeah it has that attention to detail and those cool little like story beats and stuff i like the story in this game i think that i wish it was told in a way that highlighted some of these things and like i said my big thing is that I wish you didn't have to replay the game all the way through twice. Mm, Um, I think during the first scenario, I mean, we talked earlier a lot about the game and the nuts and bolts. And I think when I, when I played the first scenario, those weaknesses were apparent to me, but then having to replay it again, it sort of just became really, really uh, like frustrating to me, Hmm. you know, because it was just like, ugh, I don't, want to do this and then when i finally got to the new content in the second scenario the fact that it was kind of wrapped up in a lot of very frustrating boss fights um yeah i didn't like and i and especially it bugged me because it's a departure from the rest of the game the other bosses and the earlier combat in the game is not hard like that well saki has a better fighter too yeah so I don't know. That Yeti fight broke my spirit. <laughs> yeah. And I remember the first time I played this game, I almost rage quit at Lady Fujiwara. I didn't have that problem this time, but I remember back in the day just being like, fuck this. Yeah. Like, it really doesn't help like how spread out the save points are. Yeah. Like, if you don't know you're going into a boss fight and you didn't save for 30 minutes, like your day is ruined. Well, and that's something we didn't even bring up. I don't think we did is that there's limited saving. I mean, yeah, it's it's like the ribbon ink ribbons in Resident Evil. But yeah, like it's not really a problem because you actually get a fuck ton of them. But especially early on, you're just kind of like, oh, I better not save. And so you get that mindset of like, I better be careful when I save. But yeah, I do think that's a detriment. Um, yeah. Quick saving on an emulator is like dope as fuck in this game. I will say uh, I played uh, I just played on the console. With my yeah. burn, with my burn DVD, I did maybe an hour on the console, but then I switched to the emulator because oh. the emulation was like totally fine. Oh sure, here's like my take on this game, right? Like it's good. I don't think it's 
amazing. Yeah. I think it has really cool parts of it that are worth experiencing. Um, I think that the whole crazy like legend, like you were saying, the sort of like reverence that's built up around this game is pretty inappropriate because I think if you approached it from that way and played it, you would just be like, I don't get it. You know? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm a collector, but I wouldn't pay more than, like, 40 bucks for this game if I found it in the wild. That's, dude, that's what I was thinking. Like, I wish this game was still in the 20 to $40 range for people because I think where this game shines is, like, if you've already played, like, every horror game on the PS2 <laughs> that, and you just, like, you want to try this weirdo kind of off-the-beaten-path horror game and have like a fun time with it and it because it's it's different than other games like it has a yeah. different feel a different aesthetic etc cetera, etc cetera. like i said i think it helps if you've played fatal frame because you'll maybe understand the structure a little better but like it's fun for that reason and it's totally a good experience as that but i think as like this like holy grail i don't think so yeah especially if you're like a japanophile i think you know i i think probably in 2019 this game might have a bigger market than it did in 2004 just because japan's so popular right now yeah well and people did not like these kind of horror games at this time i mean this this genre was dying at this time and people were not excited i mean and i like the other thing too so the other game that you can compare this to is like rule of rose right it's another super rare late era ps2 horror game Mm -hmm. um that game is so fucked and like so weird that I feel like it, if you wanted to find some sort of profundity in it, you can, or if you wanted to sort of like look at it as like this lost classic or hidden gem, it fits that profile a little bit more. I think this game is just kind of like a fun horror game. Like it's, like I said, it's worth checking out if you've checked out all this other stuff, but I totally agree that they should, I mean, if this got a PC release or something like there'd be a way bigger market for it now. Yeah, I mean, Devolver did uh, Full Metal Chaos or whatever it's called. What's that game called? Uh, Metal Wolf Metal Chaos. Metal Wolf Chaos. Yeah. <laughs> With President Michael Douglas or whatever. Yeah, that's the name of a video game. Yeah, so, I mean, if Devolver, if Devolver can bring that back from the dead, they could bring this back from the dead. Put it on Steam for 20 bucks. I mean... The other thing about this game, too, is that, like... My issues with it, even though the like technical nuts and bolts structural stuff that I didn't love, for all of that, I will say I don't think the game is like janky. Like it doesn't have tank controls. It's really easy to pick up and play. I mean, mm. you're gonna have your issues with combat because it's. You know, I mean, if you really want, you can you can enable tank controls. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know why you would want to. But. <laughs> I do love that like. It, in the options menu even they're not labeled it's just a and b and it explains to you how it works and like so to turn on <laughs> tank controls you have to like look at a diagram and read yeah. its explanation of tank controls and it makes it sound so stupid there's an infographic yeah it feels like it's it feels very loaded or it's like yeah. really this is what you want really <laughs> yep um but yeah i i i had a good time with this game i enjoyed it uh, yeah, I just it it ha- I will. There are parts of it I didn't enjoy. And I think I think that having to play the scenario twice is is a pretty big bummer. Yeah, I didn't hate it as much as you did just because like I felt like like scenario. A, I was so cautious and kind of like really trying to like conserve anything. But then the second scenario came around. I felt like I was in the groove and I could blow through it. 
So uh, I feel like the replay didn't hurt me as bad. But yeah, it could be a six-hour game instead of eight-hour game and be totally fine. I think that it, it might go up a couple notches for me if it was like that, though. Yeah. Because I think... Uh, yeah, I think it's totally valid. Like, I think that's the kind of experience that really, like, kind of blows you away. Because even, like, there's other games that do the similar structure, and every time it's just like, why? You know? Yeah, you know? Onimusha's three hours, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it just, it always kind of like bugs me where it's like, I don't know why you thought I needed to do this again. I didn't want to do it right again. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, like going into the third scenario, I was like, fuck, I got to do this castle again. Yeah. But just like it, it bypassing the whole castle. I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, and that was cool. But don't forget that there's a little bit in the manor where you can still get lost. And uh, oh, totally. You bet. You fucking bet I got lost. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Uh, three and a half stars. Oh my God, James. <laughs> Fucking no. <laughs> I give these nuanced takes. I say how I feel, and then you wrap it up with a bow dipped in diarrhea. God damn it, James. <laughs> TLDR. You Go play the game. You sabotage me at every turn. <laughs> uh, no, I, you know, I do think, though, that like the longer you're into this kind of stuff, you are always looking for like that game where you're like, Oh, I've never checked that out or I've never played that. And I like games like that, that are just a little bit weirder and a little bit more unpolished and just kind of strange. And I think this is a great one like that. Like yeah. another great one like that is like, um, uh, Galerians for the PS one. Mm, like yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah. Like that's one that is way jankier than this game and way harder to play. But I also really enjoy it for that reason. Like it's so strange and it's so unique in its way that I really enjoyed yeah. it. Anyways. Cool. What are we up to for the game? Game club. club. Um, next episode is the Halloween special. The evil within. Yeah. I got to get started on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a long one. Yeah, I, I started a playthrough. I'm gonna play some of it with our special guest. Like like you with Kwan, I played this game originally and fucking hated it. So yeah, let's see if my opinion changes. I mean, I'm a big fan of like going back to stuff that you were just like, because like if you were interested in it, there's probably a seed of something cool that if you can get past your own bullshit you might actually enjoy and maybe not you know it doesn't always happen sometimes you are just you're like not back on my bullshit this sucks but like you know i like trying yeah i mean like it's like 80s tangerine dream like oh where'd all the analog shit go why is all this like doofy fm synth shit Uh but then you know you get into it and you realize there's some bangers on there yeah you realize that sega genesis is the sound of fm synth and you're like oh my god I mean, the, the bringing up the Sega Genesis audio is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Because, you know, for every Thunder Force 4, there's a uh, electronic arts game. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm talking about the good stuff, obviously. But that's kind of all we have on the schedule, right? Evil Within. Get started playing that game, because it's pretty long. Uh, and we'll meet you there. I've got some homework to do. Yeah.